Hello and welcome to Strat News Global. I am Subrat Nanda and joining me is Dr. Francis Hutchinson, coordinator of the Malaysia Studies program at the ISES Yusuf Ishak Institute in Singapore. And today we will focus on what ails Malaysian politics. Dr. Hutchinson, later this week the Malaysian government will present a budget that's supposed to give succor to the economy that's been battered by the pandemic. Given the government's slender majority, how big a challenge is it for Prime Minister Muhyiddin Yassin? Okay, well, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to talk to you today. So, um, you've referred to the budget. So, yes, it is important for the budget to be passed, of course. But beyond that, I would also like to highlight that uh, no less than 25 MPs have put forward motions of no confidence in the Muhyiddin Yassin administration. And I think that these uh, no confidence motions are a reflection of three things. First, the fact that the Perikata Nacional administration came to power under difficult and different circumstances. And namely that Muhyiddin Yassin was named as the prime minister by the king rather than being voted in directly. So, you know, he has had to face allegations of having a, a backdoor government. Second, the balance in power between the Perikata Nacional Coalition on one side and the Pakatan Plus Opposition Coalition on the other is quite close, with the incumbent administration having just a narrow parliamentary majority. And third, uh, Moeydin Yassin, the prime minister, is seen to be in, in a weak position, and this is due to uh, Anwar Ibrahim, the, the leader of the opposition, his recent statements about having a supposed large and stable parliamentary majority as well as from Muhyiddin's side an uncertain backing from elements in UMNO, which is his coalition party, and it, it's the largest uh, party in the Perikata Nacional uh, coalition. So these motions are reflective of the situation and do pose a risk to stability. Uh, but from this to Muhyiddin being voted out is quite a stretch, as he does have a number of things going for him. First, we have to remember that he is personally quite popular. And a survey carried out by one of Malaysia's foremost polling agencies found that he enjoys the approval of 69% of the population. And among Malay voters, this rises up to 93%. So mm -hmm. it's very difficult to imagine anyone else at this point in time having these levels of approval. Second, of course, he appointed or he changed the parliamentary speaker. And this position is very influential as this person decides on the order of business in parliament and government affairs always take precedent over motions put forward by individual MPs, which are called private members' bills. So mm -hmm. the speaker can opt to put these issues at the bottom and never get to them. And third, we had elections held in the East Malaysian state of Sabah in September. And following this, the COVID numbers in the country really have increased rapidly. So the country is, is dealing with a very, very big increase in numbers now. And that also argues against holding elections right now. And fourth, the king did not support Moyedin's request to declare a statement of emergency, which would have meant that they did not have to go through parliament, the budget. But he also, on the other hand, expressed support in the way that the Moyedin Yassid administration handled the COVID situation. And he has asked for people to focus on dealing with this and pass the budget. So uh, while uh, Muhyiddin Yassin is in, shall we say, a delicate position, I think we can expect the budget to be passed. The current spell of political uncertainty sticks out in a country where one coalition ruled for six decades. The 2018 election was seen as a watershed, but what followed was instability. What mm -hmm. has gone wrong? 
So I'm not sure that we can say that something has gone wrong. Certainly, you're correct that you did have a long period of stability or lack of change, if, if you will. And following 2018, we have had a lot of change. And actually, if you like, there's some analogies with India, which, of course, was ruled by Congress from independence and then for a very long period of time after that. So, you know, this in India, you know, Congress is very much associated with the founding fathers and the move to independence. And this certainly is something also that benefited uh, Barisan Nacional, the previous um, ruling coalition. But, mm -hmm. of course, after a while, you have people that want new and different ideas. And then you also have increasing regional identities in India as, as well as Malaysia. And there needs to be some framework for these, uh, you know, differences to be taken into account. And in coming back to Malaysia, you also are seeing that the exhaustion of traditional styles of politics, where you have strong grassroots machines that mobilize voters at key points in the electoral cycle, that promise specific infrastructure projects to communities for uh, in return for their support. Now you have a larger urban population that cares about issues like governance, anti-corruption, and the quality of public services. And this is difficult for the traditional political model to respond to. I think another thing to highlight is that since 2008, uh, various opposition parties have been able to coordinate among themselves to avoid three-cornered fights. And this has dramatically helped them capture important gains in terms of parliamentary seats. So perhaps we can turn your initial statement on its head and, and not say that there's something wrong, but more mm -hmm. like Malaysia has become normal. It, it's, it's become more like other countries where you have changes in the top level direction of the country, you have smaller majorities, and you have coalitions that are formed from big parties that need to cater to small parties to get them on board, to get the numbers, to get a parliamentary majority. Once the king's role was largely ceremonial, but now the monarchy is playing a pivotal role in governance. What explains the transition? Is the royalty getting more political? So, of course, when you look at the structure of Malaysia, you have a very, very a defined position for the king, who you know, is the monarch for the whole country, and then the sultans, who are the traditional rulers of certain states within uh, Malaysia. And um, so these people are responsible for religion and Malay culture the king at the national level and the sultans in their states. And also, they are historically important. And, and the wording in the federal and the state constitutions actually gives these rulers substantial influence. For example, when you look at the wording of the constitution, kings and the sultans are tasked with appointing the prime minister, or in the case of the states, the chief minister, who, and I underline, in their opinion, commands the confidence of the majority, be it in the national parliament or the state assembly. So you can see that this wording gives uh, the ruler in question a significant mm -hmm. amount of leeway because this comes down to perceptions. And then there's another historical aspect that I think we need to highlight. And that is if we go back before 1983, kings and sultans had very expensive prerogatives. For example, they could actually block majority decisions in the national and the state parliaments. And what happened in the 1980s and the 1990s under Mahathir Mohamed, the first time he was prime minister, was that the influence of the rulers was reduced in certain ways through two constitutional amendments. 
And one of the key changes was that they were no longer able to block decisions made by parliament. So there was a big constitutional crisis in 1993, and really kind of, if you like, the soft power of the monarchs was quite significantly curtailed. And then you had Mahathir, of course, who was in power up until 2003. And then I'd say you sort of had a period of about five or six years after that, as, you know, the elected leaders and the monarchy on the other side were sort of finding their balance. And very much during the Najib Razak uh, period, we see that the kings and the sultans emerge to play a more expansive role, and particularly when it comes down to deciding who is the person that commands the majority of whether it's the parliament or the assembly. So... You know, there was a long period uh, of stability, as you mentioned in your first uh, question, and a greater state of flux. And in this context now, particularly with, you know, the new government that had to be named and so on, at the national level, but also at the state level, you have uh, the king and the sultans kind of moving into space that has been left to them by elected leaders that either don't have a lot of experience or that have uh, weak majorities. You just talked about Mahathir Muhammad. He's well over 90, has been Prime Minister for over two decades, yet shows no signs of political fatigue. Last month, his opponent Anwar Ibrahim made an unsuccessful bid for the top job and the current PM, who is over 70, hasn't shown any promise. Is there scope for new leadership? So those are some interesting questions and and I see that for me, there's, let's say, four main issues. So the first one is the promise uh, or lack of shown by the current Prime Minister, Moyedin Yassin. Then we have the role of Mahathir. Then we have uh, the role of Anwar, and particularly his bid for the Prime Ministership. And lastly, the role of new leadership. So on Moyedin Yassin, actually, there I would differ a little bit. I would say he actually, I don't think he's done so badly. Um, So uh, one of the first things I was talking about earlier on was his relatively high level of popularity. And this was due due to, you know, quite a hands-on approach uh, to dealing with the uh, COVID situation, also appearing in the media, but also letting the civil service do its job and and tackle the COVID situation from a medical point of view. Um, And he's also been quite proactive in, you know, moving to roll out uh, you know, uh, measures to, to bail out small businesses and also ramp up the payments uh, to various vulnerable communities. Um, and I think also we have to remember that he actually did come to power with a very narrow majority, but even if there was a change in leadership, this new leader would most likely also have a very narrow majority and would need to negotiate with a range of small parties. So mm-hmm. I think if we put that into context, I think we can say that, you know, uh, he hasn't done so badly after all. Now, turning to the second question, and that is Mahathir. I, I do see his role and his influence uh, waning. And you will notice that over time, he is leading ever smaller parties, of course, from Amno, then to Bursatu, a new party, and now to an even smaller party, Pajuang. And this current party, uh, Pajuang, has five members of parliament, actually had five, and one is left, leaving it four, and if we were to have snap polls right now, in all likelihood, his party would be reduced down to two MPs. So I think that people see him as someone with considerable prestige. And to use current uh, language, he is an influencer. But I would see that he is now less seen as a viable national leader. 
Mm-hmm. Now, coming to, to Anwar, he has not been able to form a new parliamentary majority, which, of course, is something that he said he was going to do. And I think there are a number of issues here. The first thing is that I think he's very much lost a lot of prestige and political capital. Uh, one of the issues is he's, this is not the first time he's done this. He actually also did this in September 2008 in uh, the aftermath of the elections of that year. And he stated he had the numbers to secure a majority and it didn't materialize. The second is that the way in which the announcement of this mysterious majority took place was very strange. It was actually in the middle of campaigning for the Sabah state elections. And virtually everybody in his coalition was campaigning in Sabah and was also taken off guard. And you had other you know, party leaders saying, uh, look, I'm sorry, we don't know anything about this. We only know what's going on in the media. So this, of course, raises questions about the integrity of the Pakatan Harapan coalition and Anwar's leadership style, particularly on an essential issue such as this. And third is that Anwar did not make public the names of the people supporting his new majority, including when he met the king. So this, of course, raises doubt as to whether this is true or not. But more importantly, the members of this new majority would be very problematic for his coalition. So actually, it appears that there are members of the old guard of UMNO, which is the party that he fought so hard to overthrow, including, of course, Najib Razak, who we all know has been or is facing a number of corruption charges, as mm-hmm. well as Zahid Hamidi, the current UMNO party president, who is himself facing a range of judicial issues. So this is very problematic because it was against these specific individuals that Pakatan Harapan campaigned in 2018. So if Anwar was intending to include these people in his coalition, you have to ask, A, at what price? And B, would people in his own parties, as well as his coalition parties, go along with this? So this is highly unlikely. So after all, when people sit down and look at this, they ask themselves, you know, is Anwar really committed to deep-seated political reform or is it really just a personal political project? And, and now we come to the final part of your question, leadership. And certainly, I think on both sides of the political spectrum, there is a dire need for leadership renewal. If we look at UMNO, which is, of course, the biggest party uh, and one that Mahathir himself belonged to, Changes that were introduced in the 1950s, as well as in the 1980s by Mahathir himself, made this party very rigid and top-heavy and centralized. And Mahathir's management style and personality also made factionalism and infighting worse. So this led to a lot of younger politicians being quite frustrated. And so when they had an opportunity to leave UMNO and join a new political party, Bursatu, they did so. But then you had the same problem where Mahathir and his son and Moyedin Yassin, the current prime minister, dominated the new top positions in the party. And if we go to the other side of the floor and we look at PKR, which is Anwar's party, you have the same thing. It's very, very much focused in this case, not again around a group of people, but just one person and his own political product. And actually what you are seeing is a, a number of younger promising leaders that used to be in the party, either leaving the party or leaving politics. So I think that this really does point to the need for a, a generational shift. And actually, while it's early days, 
and it will be very difficult for this new party to to work in the current parliamentary system. There is a new youth-based party called Muda that was founded by one person that used to be in Mahathir's party. His name is Said Sadiq, which expressly tries to deal with this issue, really trying to move away from a very, very top-heavy uh, party structure to having younger and new people in command. So I think that this is something that we do need to, to look out for. And whether it be Mahathir at 95 or you know, Anwar Ibrahim or Moyedin Yassin in the early 70s, I think there is a definitely a need for a generational renewal. On that note, Dr. Hutchinson, thanks very much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Happy to talk to you.